Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. Our scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan to the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet, this is no cause for shame, because I know in whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love, in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is the word of God for all of God's people. Thanks be to God. I caught some of you dancing. It's okay. It's all right. Would you pray with me? 
Almighty God, as we gather out here, we hear the sounds of creation all around us. And in that moment, we are reminded that no cathedral, no sanctuary, no building that we build will be a more glorious sanctuary than where we are worshiping now, out in your world. So speak to our hearts during this hour, that as we gather together to pray, to sing, to hear your word read and proclaimed, to share the meal of your kingdom, and to have fellowship with each other, that your spirit would be amongst us and upon us, so that we would leave this place not just hearers of your word, but as doers of your word. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So John Wesley, you know, was an Anglican priest. He was a reformer who wanted to change sort of the way he saw the Anglican church going. And so in that, he sort of found himself in this peculiar spot. A priest without a church. As a matter of fact, he was without one such that they suggested to him, they said, you ought to go back to school. You ought to work in the academy. And he wrote in his journal, that sounds good, but I have no appointment, meaning I have no classes. I have no students. And you tell me that you don't want me going in, these are, I'm paraphrasing now, you don't want me going and meddling in anyone else's church. In other words, going and being a minister to someone else's people because that's really bad form in our craft. So you don't want me to do that, but yet I feel the need to be in ministry. I feel called, and I love what he writes here. He says, I feel called to teach the ignorant, to reform the wicked, and to confirm the virtuous. So therefore, I, these are his words now, I declare that the world is my parish. And basically what he means with that is that God's call has no physical boundary. God's call upon our lives to be in ministry has no geographic boundary where if we cross a line, we have to stop. So he took that in a very literal sense. He went out and he would preach in the fields. Now, what was interesting about this it's much like what we're doing today. You see what we have for a pulpit, right? Simple music stand. But no, not John Wesley. He had a traveling pulpit, which is about the same size as our pulpit at the church. I mean, I'd hate to have to be the crew that had to move that thing around. But he had a traveling pulpit, and he would preach in the fields. He would preach in open pit coal mines, outside of the industrial centers, wherever people were that could not go to church. He went to them and took the message to them. That is our legacy as Methodists, to see the idea that the world is our parish, that no matter where we go, that we have an opportunity to be in ministry. Now, as Paul is writing his second letter to Timothy, he reminds Timothy of their connection, of how he has been Timothy's spiritual mentor, but then he digs a little bit deeper, and he reminds Timothy of his faith heritage, that he inherited the faith of his mother and of his grandmother, how their strong faith influenced down through the generations and even to his ministry. He said, Timothy, you're called by God, but do not forget 
from where it is that you come from. Don't forget your people and their faith. Don't forget how they have influenced you, what it is you believe, how you listen to God, and how you're in ministry. But Paul's words aren't just for Timothy, are they? They are for us as well. When we begin to think about this, our faith becomes this idea of personal. I mean, we begin to think about our own families and how they've influenced who we are, what we have learned, how we interact, how we speak to God, how we listen to God. We understand the faith of our parents and our grandparents. We pass that along to our children, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, to anyone that will listen. But then we think about our faith in a corporate sense. I mean, we think about the institutional heritage that we have and we have come in contact with. I mean, we start back with the Acts 2 church, then the early church. It goes through its growing edges and its ebbs and flows. We end up in the Protestant Reformation, and finally, this heir to John Wesley's Reformation, the Methodist church. This idea of the Methodist church in America. But then even our heritage isn't just there, is it? Look at it locally. I mean, we started with the Mulberry Treat Society so many years ago. That gave way to the West End Methodist Church, to then what became Centenary United Methodist Church, until we merged. And then 90 years ago, there was this vision for ministry right in Winston-Salem, right there on 5th Street, where we've been anchored for so many years. Our heritage, it influences who we are and what we're to be about. But also those lessons remind and they inform us not only of that, but also of how we are to be, how we're to practice our faith. We begin to see this, that we understand that we have a calling to serve, a calling to collaborate, a calling to invite and to reconcile the world within itself. See, if we think about this, if the world is truly our parish, then we are called to go out into the world. Not just on 5th Street, not just out here at Tanglewood, but out into the world to serve, to collaborate in ministry, and to bring others into that conversation so that the kingdom of heaven might be that much closer here on earth. We think about how we invest our lives in ministry. Kay referred to this in our prayer. We're talking about this idea of changing the world for the sake of the gospel, where we clothe the naked, we feed the hungry, we comfort those who mourn, we heal those who are sick, we house those who are homeless. See, what we're really doing is we're looking at the world and we're saying, you matter. You matter not only to me, not only to our congregation, but you matter to our God in heaven who looks down upon us. But what we're really doing is we're beginning to put our faith into action. Now Paul wrote that faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean this idea of works righteousness, that you have to do so many good deeds to get into heaven. But those good deeds, our works become evident that we have had hearts changed by God in heaven. What I love about youth mission trips is I think about this. When you think about teenagers, we've had them in Sunday school as children, as youth, and we've sort of, if you want to think about this, we have sort of unscrewed the top of their heads and we have been pouring in a steady diet of faith formation. But at some point, they've got to own it, right? And so what we do with youth mission trips, a lot of times what we find is that what we've been teaching in Sunday school 
and in Bible school and in youth group. It's all in there, but it's got to come out. It's got to be lived and alive. And so that's what happens on youth mission trips. They begin to understand how to put their faith into action, how to, to live it and take faith formation and faith in action and marry it together to get this idea of what the kingdom of God can look like when we're focused on it. So the early Methodists understood that. John Wesley took this idea of field preaching and the world is my parish to the outer extremes. When they looked around, they realized that children were working in factories and in mines and that they were illiterate. John Wesley said, unacceptable. And so the Methodists started Sunday school not to teach faith, though that was the byproduct of it. They did it to teach children how to read, how to learn, how to understand history. Sunday school really was school on Sunday, and they used the church as the basic curriculum. Faith formation married up with reading and writing, mathematics and history. They took the same thing into the idea of feeding the hungry, helping the poor, going out of the world to the utter extremes so that we would show the world what a faith in action looks like. Well, we're doing that here today as well. When you came in, we had the collection boxes for the health kits. I mean, our goal is to collect 2,000 health kits, and when we do that, there are 2,000 people that will receive that bag, and they will wake up in the morning when they are utterly at their worst. They don't feel valued, and we give them something that says, at the very least, let's brighten your day and help your day get off to a good start. Or Jeremy mentioned at the very beginning that next week we're going to do Rise Against Hunger, package 20,000 meals. Well, 20,000 meals feeds 80,000 people. So if you think about it, next week in just a few hours' time, we will provide food for a small community for one day. That's impressive. That's amazing because what we're really saying is that we go out to serve to make a difference in the world. We serve because it's our faith in action beyond the walls of our church, beyond the confines of our Sunday school class or our small group. We go out to serve the world. See, as United Methodists, we've always understood the power of small groups. When we first started meeting, we met in these groups called bands or classes. It was a chance to check in with each other. How is it with your soul to pray for each other, to study scripture together? But as these small classes met in communities, they began to understand that there was a power when the classes became a group of classes. This idea of collaboration, of connectionalism, helped us understand that we could better serve the world with a deeper impact when we combined our, we combined our energies. So when you think about it today, the United Methodist Church is in ministry around the world. We're involved in ministry in over 80 countries. Somewhere across the globe, the people called United Methodist are in 80 countries. And when you see a cross and a flame on the side of a building, those are our brothers and sisters. Those are our people carrying out our ministry together. We do ministries of relief with disasters, with refugees, with reducing poverty. We do ministries with missionaries who are teaching, providing medical care, building communities. We're looking at global health. We're providing intervention and prevention. Scalable health services and nutrition. And then just direct projects where we're looking at communities and saying, how can we make a difference? We're digging wells. We're running orphanages. 
We're providing agricultural training and sustenance. We're providing faith formation where it did not exist beforehand. But see, that's the United Methodist Church as a whole, but we are a part of that. We, all of us gathered out here today, Centenary United Methodist Church, we're a part of over 250 projects around the world that are making a difference because we stood up and said, the world is our parish. We collaborate. When Marianne talks about our offerings and what we want to do, we talk about our mission dollars. But part of our mission dollars, beyond what we give for our local agencies, are what we provide to the United Methodist Church to do ministry together, where we collaborate with this idea of going into the world, our congregation, the congregation down the street, the congregation on the other side of the community, the other side of the country, and across the globe. We collaborate to make a difference. Locally, we do the same thing. Locally, we take uh, about 18 mission partners, 18 agencies that our missions committee says, this is where we want to go a mile deep with these groups because we can take our time, our energy, our resources, our opportunities, and we can pour them into these agencies to make a difference, providing medical care, homeless services, food, prison ministry. We're going a mile deep and an inch wide because we want to make a difference. But we know we can't do it alone, so we're partnering with these agencies and with other churches in the community to make that happen. See, we witness that collaboration. We start to realize that we cannot do it alone, but together we can do so much more. The world is our parish. And we look out across it, we begin to see our effects, whether it's a cross and a flame, or an agency like Citywood Dwellings, Samaritan, those kinds of places where we are deeply involved. Our 12 basket ministry this year that was taking place at Roots Revival, they had the same idea, gathering resources so that we could collaborate to make a difference. Working with senior services to provide fans or heaters for the season for our most underprivileged and most insecure older adults in our community. See, that's what we're about not just about collaboration, though. We're about reconciling the world to God. When I think about what we're doing here today on World Communion Sunday, when I look at this table, and realize that we're going to all come to this table soon enough, I'm reminded that the Lord's table is the most unlikeliest of dinner parties. I and mean, when you think about it, I mean, when you look at who the characters were, I talked about them a little bit last week, but to really get an idea, I think about the fresco up in Glendale Springs that Ben Long painted of the Last Supper. I mean, it's a mixed bag of characters, is it not? When you look in their faces, you begin to realize how unique the disciples were, how different they were. At times, they were sort of puffed up with their own self-importance, and at times, they also let Jesus down, didn't they? I mean, even when they promised that they wouldn't do it, they did it. I mean, look at Judas. Look at Peter. I mean, Peter, the one that boasts and says, I'm never going to let you down, Jesus, and Jesus says, Peter, i got bad news for you. And Peter says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to prove you wrong. And when the cock crowed the third time, Peter just hung his head because he knew. I mean, I think about that, but what I love about that fresco, what I love about that image is there is one more chair that no one's sitting in. That chair is for you and you and you and me. That chair is for us. And I think about it, I think, what if we were sitting at that table, what would Jesus say to us? 
What would he say about us, knowing that he's called all of us to this? Broken as flawed as we are, he's called us to the table and said, there's a seat for you. Maybe he would have just put his head on his hand and said, did you really think it was smart to post that on Facebook? Did you really mean to say that? What were you thinking? But at the end of the day, as imperfect and as flawed as we are, there's a seat at the table for us. I think about over my career, over the last 25 years, I have celebrated communion on retreats, on trips, at conferences and missions. And every time that I do that, when we're there at the table, no matter what it looks like, whether it's this ornate table or it's simply a milk crate that's been turned over with a simple paper plate and a Dixie cup with bread and juice. I'm reminded that God is present at that moment, but there's always a seat, there's always a place for one more person. There's always a place for me, there's always a place for you, and still there's room for one more person. So we gather today, as we've heard at World Communion Sunday, we gather with Christians around the world, we gather at this table, and remember that those that gather, no matter where they are across the globe, they gather at a table very similar to ours. Because really at that table, all that matters is the meal. The bread and the wine. But there's a seat for us. There's a seat for others. And so if we believe that the world is our parish and we want to celebrate that, then we know that we must go out into the world and we must invite others until all the seats are filled, till there is room that all of the world is at the Lord's table celebrating God's grace for us. Because there's a place for everyone, no matter how flawed, no matter how imperfect, no matter how broken, no matter how well they know God, there is a place at this table for all of us. So today, as I come to the table, as I look in your faces, as I think about where I've taken communion, I think about Rene Quintana, the pastor of a Methodist church in Cuba, who was so glad to see a friend return after a year to help work on his church. Or I think about Consi, who was the head of the UMW of the Mount Hannah Methodist Church, and believe you me, stern-faced and machete-wielding, she had a heart of gold in Jamaica. Some of you have been to Bolivia or to Puerto Rico or to Haiti or East Tennessee. You have family and friends far away. We have brothers and sisters that we collaborate with at Green Street here in Winston, at St. Paul in Winston, and we think about this, that we are all gathered around the Lord's table. So today, as you come up, as you come to receive this meal of the kingdom, you'll receive the meal, the bread and the wine. You will have an opportunity to give thanks by bringing your offering to the Lord. But as you leave, you will have an opportunity to take a token with you, a coin, if you will. And it says this, the world is our parish. Let this be a reminder to us that as we take that coin that we are to go forth in the world, that we're to go forth to serve the world, to serve the kingdom of heaven, 
that were to go forth to collaborate for the good of God's creation. That we go forth to invite others so that the table may be full the next time we gather in worship. So let us celebrate the bounty of the Lord. Let us realize the world is our parish. And let's come forth and celebrate. Amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you'll consider joining us for worship on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock or Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, or 11. Have a blessed day.